Well, again, good morning, everybody. Again, it's nice to see everybody. It's a beautiful day, and it's nice to see the Brooklyn Church is pretty full this morning. That's always that's always a blessing because we know God's uh, children are eager to come and praise and worship before the Lord. Before we get started, shall we just have, bow and have a quick prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being in your house on your Sabbath day to worship before you. And truly, Lord, everybody here is here to worship before you. And as I like to always ask, Lord, before uh, I begin, if there be any sins among myself or among my brethren and sister, if there be any sins among us, Lord, I ask that you would forgive us our sins, give us strong convictions and repentance to turn from our sins. I don't want anything that would keep your presence and your Holy Spirit from being here and speaking to our hearts. Uh, all the messages that uh, you have given to this church, our Lord, are so precious. They're precious as gold, and we need to cherish them. And we just and we thank you for giving those to us, your remnant church. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our subject today is uh, the validity and biblical certainty of 1844 and answers to our critics. I find that the 1844 message is one of those one of the most key messages of the Seven Day Adventist Church. In fact, it is the judgment message of 1844, of 1844 that actually makes us who we are. And in fact, we are the only church on this planet that actually preaches the judgment of 1844. Amen? And we do that for a reason, because God gave us this message. In fact, Satan actually hates this message, because once a person is aware of this message... And they're convicted of this message of the judgment starting in 1844. It really draws a person closer to God. It makes them reevaluate their life and their relationship with God as well. So it's, it's a, a tremendous message because it also lets us know what's going on in the heavenly courts above us today. And so if you could actually destroy the 1844 message, and believe me, many have tried, and many are still trying to do that, you would utterly destroy the Seventh-day Adventist church. Would you believe that? It's absolutely true. In fact, we believe this because we are the remnant church brought up by God for a particular reason. God rose us up to proclaim what? The three angels' messages. Is that right? Every Adventist knows that God raised us up to proclaim the three angels' messages. And if you will, let's read Revelation 14, 6, and 9 together, shall we? Ready? And I saw another angel in the midst of heaven, everybody, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, and to every kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made the heaven and who had made the earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So the judgment for this message to go to the world that we need to proclaim that God's judgment has come. This is part of the everlasting gospel. If you see that, say amen. So it's my purpose today to show the validity and biblical certainty of 1844 and answers to our enemies or our critics who attack 1844. And I'm amazed today on YouTube how many people are on there attacking the 1844 message. And most surprisingly, 
the majority of the strongest attacks are coming from within, not from without. And it's very sad to me. So let's start our subject and go right into it. Does the Bible speak of a judgment that is to come? The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, For God shall bring every work into, what? Judgment. With every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And in Matthew 12 and verse 36, But I say unto you that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And, and there are many, many more texts that I can give. But just from these verses, is there any doubt that there is a judgment to come? There is none. There is a judgment, and it affects each and every one of us. And as we know, when Jesus comes back, Jesus is coming back to give his reward to those who are his people, those who are his children. And we all know what that award, reward is, right? It's everlasting life. So there's no doubt that when Jesus comes, there has to be a decision already made on who those are going to be saved and those will be lost. So the judgment is in a very important event that affects each and every one of us individually. In fact, there's a statement in Matthew chapter 13, 47 and 15, and 50, and I'll read this. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind which which when it was full they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into the vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be in the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing the teeth. Again, the Bible talks about this separation between the good and the bad. And what's interesting, when you study the judgment, and if you've never studied the judgment yourself, I encourage you strongly to do a personal study on this because it's the most amazing study. It will just draw you in, uh, not only from the Bible, of course, but I would encourage you to read The Great Controversy and The Investigated Judgment in The Great Controversy. Fantastic reading. Read it again and again. It will amaze you. It's packed with scripture, and it will really open your eyes to what is going on right now. So in the judgment, God is recording everything in books. Okay, and I want to show you some of this. Revelation 20, and verse 12, and it reads, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. So is there one book or books? There is books, right? And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And in Malachi chapter 3, and verse 16, then they that feared the Lord spake often to one another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. So there are many books. There's a book of remembrance. There's a book of your deeds. There's a book of life. There are many. And I won't have time to go into all the books, but the point I want to get across, that in the judgment, everything that you do say and think or the intents of your heart are being recorded in the book, and based on what is recorded in those books, the heavenly courts will make a decision on whether you're saved or lost or whether there's any moral worth in you. So how do the Seventh-day Adventists come up with the judgment starting in 1844 from the Bible? Well, 
many of our critics say this. The Adventists just came up with the date 1844 as a face-saving excuse for the great disappointment of 1844 by William Miller. Now, what's interesting about William Miller, William Miller, as you know, was a Baptist. He never was a Seventh-day Adventist. He preached that Jesus would return in 1844, and he was proven to be wrong. But it is true that William Miller got the time of 1844 wrong for the return of Jesus. He got the event wrong, but an event did happen in the fall of 1844, and I will show you that. And I believe that the 1844 beginning of the pre-Advented judgment message can be easily proven from the Bible. It's not difficult to prove this from the Bible at all, but you definitely have to spend a little time in the Scriptures with it, and we're going to go into some of that today. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as you know, rose up after the Millerite movement. After the, 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 there were many people from different denominations, and they were studying with William Miller, and of course he had the different church, and he was studying Daniel and Revelation, and he was showing how he came up to 1844. And it was, un, it was no doubt that the date was correct. He got the event wrong. And of course there was a great disappointment. But a group of people from different denominations stayed together, and they studied these prophecies. And they realized something is wrong because this date is for sure. And so they, as they were studying, and I believe it was by the Lord's hand, the Lord showed them that they actually that Jesus went from the holy place in the most holy and that the judgment had commenced in 1844. So some of our critics even say that if a judgment did happen, uh, it started when Jesus ascended into heaven right after his resurrection. And they use this as a scripture proof in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. When he, God, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. So they use this text as a proof text that Jesus did not go in the first compartment, but he went right and sat down next to the Father. So therefore, the 1844 investigative judgment is incorrect. Now, just to refresh, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, and yet I know some of you are new as well. But the Adventists, as you know, in the heavenly sanctuary, uh, as you know, the sanctuary on earth was a pattern of the sanctuary in heaven. So there is a sanctuary in heaven, amen? It's a biblical certainty. There's no question about it. I don't have time to go into all the details because this is a lengthy sermon, so I want to get right into it. But we Adventists believe that Jesus went right into the holy place. That's the first compartment. And those who may not be familiar, when you study the book of Revelation, you'll see where Jesus is standing amongst the candlesticks, which clearly shows where he's at. And then in 1844, he crossed into the most holy, where the Ark of the Covenant and where God dwelt. Okay? So that's the Adventist teaching. Now, there is... This is probably one of the largest critics of 1844 judgment. And this is a man by the name of Desmond Ford. And he turned out to be one, he was one of our own theologians. I know many of you have heard that name. Now, uh, Dr. Desmond Ford, I guess, recently had passed away. I understand he was a lovely man. I never met him. But if you go on YouTube, you can hear him speak. He speaks very eloquently. He speaks very lovingly of Jesus Christ. And he wrote this thesis, if you will, which is that, which you see on there, uh, Seventh-day Adventism, the Investigative Judgment and the Everlasting Gospel. Now, this is a thousand-page uh, thesis that he wrote. And so, uh, one of the slides, this is kind of sums up his thesis. 
on the slide I pulled off the internet, it says there under Desmond Ford, bye-bye to the investigated judgment. And I'm telling you, this man has done more damage to the Seventh-day Adventist church than anybody else in the history of Adventism. There are many members who have left the church because of this man. There are many pastors who have left this church because of this man. And if you go on YouTube, you can even hear pastors telling you that uh, the, the Seventh-day Adventist church is wrong based on what they learned from Desmond Ford. Now here's another Adventist theologian, and he studied in depth the works of Desmond Ford, and he kind of puts it into a nice little package. So I'm going to read it from Dr. Ralph Larson. I actually met Dr. Ralph Larson many times, and I used to go around and hear him speak. He wrote many uh, uh, some really good books, uh, uh, The Word Made Flesh and, and, uh, and The Sanctuary Message as well. But this is what Dr. Ralph Larson says. On October 27, 1979, this was the heyday, if you will, of Dr. Desmond Ford, at a meeting of Association of the Adventist Forum at Pacific Union College, he delivered an address in which he took very strong issue with the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in regards to the sanctuary and investigated judgment. <clears throat> now listen to this. His overall thesis appears to be that Christ did not enter the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary in 1844, as we have taught and believed throughout all our history, but rather that Christ entered the most holy place to begin his final work of his work for man in 31 A.D., at the time of Jesus Christ's ascension to heaven. So there you go. Also, he, uh, Dr. Ford puts a lot of emphasis on justification, and he distances himself from sanctification. And I want to uh, just point out some of this contention. So the point of contention is Desmond Ford believed that there was no investigated judgment that happened in 1844, and Desmond Ford also believed that Jesus completed salvation at the cross in a final atonement at the cross. Therefore, since the final atonement was completed at the cross, all we have to do now is accept Jesus in place of our life in order to be saved. Therefore, there is no need for an investigated judgment. But if I could show you today, if I can show you today that biblically that a judgment did begin well after 31 AD, well after when Jesus ascended to heaven, and that your salvation does not, is not only depend on your accepting Jesus as your sacrificial lamb who took away your sins, but also salvation is based on whether you have truly repented of sin and that you have truly been born again. If I can do that today biblically, I can absolutely show that Dr. Desmond Ford is absolutely wrong. So, so here's the question. Does God expect a change in you? And from my studying of Scripture, and we here in Brooklyn believe very strongly that God expects a change in us, we are not just to accept Jesus. Do we have to accept Jesus? Absolutely. But is that the end of the plan of salvation? And the answer to that is no. And let me give you the biblical proof. So here's the question. Can a person go to heaven if they have never been born again? You all know that Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you shall no way enter the kingdom of God. So is being born again necessary for salvation? So therefore, is just believing in Jesus the only thing we have to do? Well, we need both, right? We need to believe in Jesus and we need to be born again. So what? how do I know if a person is born again? 
Well, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible tells us, and I quote, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit what? Sin. That is a sign of a person that's born again. Let me read another quote to you. Can a person go to heaven if they've never truly repented of sin then? And I quote Jesus Christ. I tell you, this is found in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. Jesus says, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise what? Perish, right? Now, of course, repentance or of sin is a turning away. It's another way of saying not sinning. So then, being born again in repentance is necessary in order to be saved. So would I have to answer yes. So this shows you right there that Desmond Ford's belief in just believing in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross is amazing and fantastic as it is. That is not all that the Bible teaches nor Jesus teaches that is required to be saved. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that we need to change. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, I read, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away. So God expects us to be a follower of Christ. There needs to be a change. We need to become new. And so what is this change in those that become new? And we, the Bible answers this as, as well. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6, we are told, Whosoever abides in Christ, which is just another way of saying those that are in Christ, does what? Sinneth not. So, I don't know about you, but I see a repeating theme here in this change. Amen? God expects His people to separate from what? Sin. If there's going to be, if God is wanting a change in you, the changes, He wants you to stop sinning. Is that clear? Amen? Do you believe that? Do you believe the Word of God? That's what the Word of God says. This isn't some theology coming from me. This is what God's Word says. And so there are books in heaven that record everything we do. All these will witness against us if we choose not to abide in Christ, which is the only way in which we can be changed. The change doesn't come from us, right? Amen? We need Christ to change us, but we need to cooperate with God so He can change us. Amen? So this is not salvation by works. This is salvation by cooperating and depending and having faith in God to change us. But there is something that God requires of us. That's my point. So let's talk a little bit about the judgment. I want to just bring up a couple more texts in regards to these books, because I don't want you to forget about these books, because it is through these books and what is written down about each and every one of you and myself is going to determine whether you're saved or lost. In Isaiah chapter 65, verses 6 and 7, Behold, it is written before me, this is God speaking, your iniquities and iniquities of your father, says the Lord. So the Lord says there are things written, okay? In Exodus 32 and 33, And the Lord declared to Moses, Whosoever sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And also in Revelation 3, 5, Jesus says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white remnant, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. So again, there's no question, brothers and sisters, that there are books in heaven recording all our deeds. So here's the question. Did the judgment begin in 31 AD? And I'm answering no, and I'm going to show you this, okay? Now I find this, I find this subject absolutely mind-gripping and interesting, and I hope you find it here today as true. 
Now we all know that in the books of Acts, Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, was written after the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven. And we know this because the second verse in chapter 1 in the book of Acts states this. Until the day in which he, speaking of Jesus, was taken up. So clearly, therefore, everything written in the book of Acts, after the very first chapter, second verse, is very clearly. Because you couldn't say that Jesus was taken up unless that event had already happened. Amen? Do you see that? So there's no doubt everything in the book of Acts was written after. And keeping that in mind, let's read also Acts 17 and 31. Now pay attention to this. He, God, had appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he has raised him from the dead. So we learn two things from this, this text. One, Jesus had already risen from the dead. Again, we already learned that from chapter 1 in the book of Acts. And that God has appointed a day in which he will. So let me ask you something. Does this statement talking of present tense or future tense? Future tense, right? God's going to uh, uh, point a day in which he will judge the world. This was after the ascension of Jesus. This proves that the judgment happens later. In fact, there are another text in there that I can read that says the same thing. In the book of Acts again, chapter 24 and 25, and, the, and it reads, He reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and a judgment to what? To come. Again, the judgment is a future event that happens after the ascension of Jesus. Again, those who believe that the judgment began when Jesus ascended to heaven, according to the book of Acts, is wrong. If you see that, say amen. There is no question about it. So to show you that the judgment began in 1844, we'll have to go to the books of Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8, and 9. Now don't be afraid, we're not going to read every verse in there. But I am going to read the verses that are going to attain to show you that 1844 is a legit biblical certainty. So keeping this in mind as we study that, I want you to pay close attention to the sequential events, okay? Because each one of these chapters gives us a little bit more like breadcrumbs that leads us to 1844, okay? And I want you to see this. So let's get right into it. Daniel chapter 2. You know, I'm going to take a quick little swig here because my throat is starting to dry up. I have a lot, do a lot of talking. I'm sorry. Oh, that's good. Okay. Daniel chapter 2. Let's go right into it. Now, again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, okay? So we're not going to go. You can go to Daniel chapter 2 and read everything that I'm telling you. Daniel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. We all know that King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, right? And he couldn't remember his dream, and he wanted to know the interpretation. So he called all his wise men, his magicians, and all all his people who claimed that they, you know, they know everything. And he asked them, he said, listen, I had this dream and I want you to tell me what this dream was. And if you can't tell me what this dream is, I'm going to destroy all of you. Because if you can't tell me those things, you're phony and you're false, right? That's a biblical fact. Now these men stood before the king and said, listen, king, you know, there is no man that can tell you what, what you dream. But if you tell me the dream, I'll tell you what it meant. Okay, and the king didn't buy into that. He says, no, you need to tell me what the dream I had or you're all being destroyed. 
Well, Daniel was also a part of that company. They were taken captive into Babylon, and Daniel was forced to be a part of the, the company of wise men. And when Daniel heard what was going to happen, that Daniel asked God if he would give him what the king dreamed and the interpretation of, and that's exactly what God did. So I'm going to, I'm going to read these a little bit of Daniel chapter 2 because it really lays a base to understanding 1844, okay? So in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31, Thou, O king, answered, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and from, and from therefore was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till the stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon the feet that were iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer, summer threshing floors. And the winds carried them away, that no place was found in them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell you the interpretation before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And whereas the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath given into thy hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Pay real attention to this, I know you guys know this, thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be stronger as iron, for as iron breaketh to pieces and subdueth all things, and as the iron that breaketh all things shall break into pieces and shall bruise. And whereas thou sowest the feet and the toes part of potter's clay and of iron, the kingdom shall be divided but there shall be in it the strength of iron, for much as thou sowest the iron mixed with mirely clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sowest the iron mixed with the mirely clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up his kingdom, which shall, be, shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all things, and it shall stand forever. And for so much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God of heaven hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation is certain. Now again, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, so just to reiterate that, I know that's a lot of reading, it's a lot to take in, especially if you're new to the subject. So in short, Daniel is told by God, or God, or God tells through Daniel to the king, Daniel, you are this, there's like an image that the king saw. And he says, listen, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And in these kingdoms, he said, after another kingdom of silver would rise up and conquer you. And another kingdom would rise up of brass, which would conquer the silver. And another kingdom would rise up of iron, which would conquer Greece. 
Now, what's really interesting here is that what Daniel's being, was Daniel's relaying to the king that on this planet we've only had how many world empires? How many world empires? Four. Babylon was a world empire. We know Medo-Persia conquered Babylon. We know Greece conquered Medo-Persia. And we know Rome conquered Greece. And after this, nobody conquers Rome, but Rome falls apart. And it becomes ten kingdoms. Okay? So that's what Daniel is relating to in Daniel chapter 2. And I wanted you to see that. So you might be wondering, what does Daniel chapter 2 have to do with understanding 1844? Well, let me ask you something. First of all, historically, am I correct on a sequence of events on world empires, yes or no? You can go in your history books and you can study this for yourself and you will know it happens exactly like this. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now let me ask you something. We had already learned in the book of Acts, that a judgment was going to happen when? In the future or that time? In the future, right? So we know, therefore, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, that there was going to be a judgment to happen sometime in the future. Let me ask you a question. In which world empire did Jesus live? Rome, right? Rome, right here. So we know since Jesus ascended to heaven and the judgment was going to happen in the future... At least in Daniel chapter 2, we know that the judgment doesn't begin somewhere between in here and there, right? We know that. Who does the rock representing coming out of heaven? Jesus Christ, right? The rock of ages. So that's the sign of Jesus coming back, the second coming, who sets up his kingdom eventually on this earth. And when you study the word mountain in the Bible, the Bible makes it very clear, prophetically, a mountain stands for a kingdom. So when the kingdom fills the whole earth, eventually God's kingdom is going to be right here on this planet and it fills the whole earth. But for right now, I want you to keep in mind, at least at this point, we know that the judgment doesn't happen here, here, here. But we do know at least from here, uh, the judgment had to start somewhere between here and here. Because when Jesus comes, the reward is with him. And so therefore, the decision has to be made sometime before that. Is that clear? Okay. Okay, so our next clue comes to us, and when the judgment begun, begins, it comes to us in Daniel chapter 7. Now again, I'm preaching to the choir here. Many of us have studied the book of Daniel again and again and again. I will show a little bit, because I know some of you might be new to this subject. But in Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 2, these four kingdoms are described as metals. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision and these four beasts are, or these four kingdoms are described as animals. And I'm going to show you just a little bit of that right now. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel was given a vision starting in verse 1. And Daniel sees four beasts that rise out of the sea. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a bear, and the third like a leopard. And the fourth has a, had a dreadful, and was a dreadful and terrible beast, with ten horns. And then he sees a little horn arise out of the ten horns with eyes of a mouth and a mouth speaking great things. So question, who are these beasts and who is the little horn? Daniel was grieved in his spirit, uh, Daniel seven fifteen through 21. Daniel was grieved in my spirit and in the midst of my body and the vision of my head troubled me. 
And I came near unto one of them that stood before me, which is always the angel Gabriel, as you study the book of Daniel. He's talking to Gabriel's telling him all this. And Daniel asked him the truth of this, so he told me, made me know the interpretation of the things in which he was shown, right? The great beasts which are four are four kingdoms which shall arise out of the earth. Now keep in mind, Daniel is in the time of Babylon. Of course, there are four kingdoms, just as we're told. Um, then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which had ten horns that were in his head, and the little horn which came up, and they had eyes, the eyes of a man, a mouth that spake great things. And I beheld the same little horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now, who are the saints? The people of God, right? No question. And in Daniel chapter seven and twenty-four, we're told this. The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another little horn shall arise after them. Which if the horn is a kingdom, then the little horn is a little kingdom, right? Shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse, meaning different from the first, meaning Rome. Now, so just comparing chapter 2 and verse 7, you see this. In Daniel chapter 2, again, you see, Daniel sees these four kingdoms described as metals. And in Daniel chapter 7, they're described as beasts. But I want you to see one thing, that Rome actually divides. It falls apart into ten kingdoms. And I'm just going to reiterate that, but it's important that you understand this. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40, <clears throat> The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, and whereas thou sowest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron... The kingdom shall be divided. So right here, Rome is becoming divided. But there shall be in it the strength of iron. And how many toes are there on a statue? How many toes, right? Ten. There's no, that's not a coincidence. Comparing that with Daniel chapter 7 and verse 19. Thou, then I would know the truth of the poor fourth beast which had ten horns that were in his head. In verse 24, the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. So it's very clearly that Rome is, falls apart and is now divided up into ten kingdoms. And we know that we're right because we have the unique prophetic advantage of living in the time of the toes. We don't live anywhere up here. We're way down here. And all we have to do is look back on history to see if our understanding is correct. And when we do... We see it happen exactly like that. After Rome, Rome fell apart. It fell in, it became ten kingdoms. But Rome still exists. And it's important for you to understand that, that Rome still exists even down here. It's no longer a world empire, but it's broken up into ten kingdoms. And during the time of the ten kingdoms, another little kingdom arises and he attacks and he goes after God's people. Okay. So I'm going to read this. Oh, I just read 24. So here's a question. Who is the little horn? Again, it's no mystery, friends. We have history on our side. All we have to do is go to the history books, and we know exactly who arose out of those ten kingdoms. And there's no question about it. It was Papal Rome. Who is the king of Rome today? Papal Rome, right? It hasn't changed. To this day, the king of Rome is still Papal Rome. During the time, if you're familiar with history, Constantine was actually ahead of pagan Rome, and then he claimed to become a Christian, and then pagan Rome, he moved his capital to Istanbul, Istanbul, how am I say that? 
thank you, Istanbul, Turkey, and he turned over, if you will, uh, Rome in Italy to the Pope. And that's how this little horn arises. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Please, first, pay close attention to this sequence, okay? Well, I've already explained it, but I, I just want you to see it again. Yeah, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome divides into ten, and then a papacy arises out of the ten. That is the sequence in which Daniel gives to us. So we know who these kingdoms are, right? <clears throat> Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you have pagan Rome arising out of the ten kingdoms of fallen Rome. Now what's interesting in Daniel 7, <clears throat> and it pay, please pay close attention to this, don't miss, there is an event that happens before the second coming of Jesus Christ and when the papal Rome arises, okay? Don't miss this. I want you to see this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 8 and 10. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn. Again, we're talking the ten kings and one arising, which is papal Rome. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Who's that? We know, right? Papal Rome. And I beheld, Daniel says, I beheld to the thrones were placed, and one that was the Ancient of Days did sit. His remnant was white as snow, his hair like was pure wool, his throne in fiery flames, and the wheels thereof burned fire. Fiery stream issued and came from before him. Thousands of thousands ministered unto him, and ten times ten thousand stood before him. And what? Read it with me. And the judgment was set, and the books were opened. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a judgment. This is the time of the judgment. Okay? Now what's interesting about this, and what I want you to pay close attention to, that the judgment happens in the sequence after papal Rome comes into power. Amen? So what does that tell us? We now know, in Daniel 2, we knew that the judgment began sometime between here and here. But the little horn arises among the ten. So now we know, at least in Daniel chapter 7, that the judgment begins sometime in the feast. Amen? Do you see that? It's important that you see that. Now I will say that if you read uh, the King James Version, and you read Daniel 7, 8, and 10, it reads a little differently. And as much as I love the King James Version, it's actually not written correctly. In fact, when you read um, even the Great Controversy, Ella White quotes this verse to herself, and, and uh, the version she gives is in the Revised Version. So my point was that Ella White uses the Revised Standard Version, and if you look at some of the other versions, it's written the same way, okay? So again, the importance of this sequence is that the judgment happens during the time of the ten kings, after the little horn arises. This is also proof, again, which we already learned, that in the book of Acts, we're told that the judgment would happen in a future event. Amen? So this clarifies what Acts, Acts of the Apostles already told us, that after the ascension of Jesus, that the judgment would begin in a future date, and now we see clearly from the book of Daniel chapter 7, yeah, it does happen in a future date, right? Amen? So, now let's go to Daniel chapter 8. We're moving along pretty good. In Daniel chapter 8, we're going to get a little bit more of the whole picture, and also a little bit more information in regards to the start date of the judgment. 
In Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, unto me, Daniel, at that which appeared unto me at first. So what can I learn from this verse? What I can learn from this verse is Daniel is given a vision again in the time of Babylon because Belshazzar is actually, I believe, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's a grandson. So there's no doubt where Daniel is in history. Now here's what's interesting. Daniel envisioned, he says, Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before me a ram. And then he said in 8 verse 5, And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat. So here now in Daniel chapter 8, he sees two more animals. And we don't have to guess who these are, because in the in Daniel chapter 8, we're told the angel reveals very clearly who these animals are. Daniel 8, verse 20. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of who? Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Greece, right? So here in Daniel is given a vision, and while he's in Babylon, and now God tells him literally, by name, who's the next world empire is going to be, and then who's the third world empire going to be. Amen? So, again, again, we didn't need to know that, because really, because of where our advantage point, all we have to do is go back and look on history, and it confirms what God has already said. Amen? I find the book of Daniel one of the most fascinating books of all the Bible. I don't know about you. And then Daniel describes another beast that rises after Greece. And let's read this. A king of fierce continents shall stand up and shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. He shall also stand up against the prince of princesses. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Amen. But he shall be broken without hands. Now some might say, listen, there's no question who that is. That's Rome, right? Because Rome is the one that stood up against Christ, put thorns on his head, nailed him to the cross, took his followers, tortured them, murdered them in the Colosseum, in the Colosseum, fed them the lions. Is that true? But, but not so fast. Because some people might say, oh no, that's the little horn. Because did not the little horn also stand up against Christ, claiming to be God on earth? Also, in the dark ages, persecuted the followers, of, the followers of Christ, burned them at the stake. By the millions, Christians were slaughtered by the Catholic Church in the dark ages. And that's a historical fact. Is that true? There's no doubt. So the question is, which one is Daniel talking about here? And I want to compare Daniel 7 with Daniel chapter 8. And he's talking about the same person. And I want you to see this. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 17. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which had ten horns that were in his head, and the little horn which came up. So there's no question who he's talking about now. He's talking about the little horn. That had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things. I beheld the same little horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now I want you to compare that with Daniel chapter 8. A, a king of fierce continents and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Daniel chapter 7 says he came up. Daniel chapter 8 says he shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and holy people. So there's no question who Daniel's talking about here. He's talking about the papal Rome, the papacy. 
So just a snapshot of Daniel chapter 8. It looks like this. Daniel doesn't really go in to talk about Babylon. He just shows you the ram, Medo-Persia, the he-goat, Greece, and the little horn, papal Rome. But here's what is interesting. What else can we learn about Daniel chapter 8? Here's the most amazing statement, probably one of the most amazing prophecy, prophetic statements made in all the Bible. There are 27 verses in Daniel chapter 8, and right in the middle of these verses, there is a statement told by Daniel while envisioned by the angel Gabriel. And it's found in Daniel chapter 8, 14. And the angel told Daniel, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Wow. Okay? What does this mean? I know many of you already know, but I want to show you from the Bible. I want to give you Bible facts and certainty exactly what the 2300 days means. In fact, Daniel didn't even know. But more importantly, I want us to think about where would that 2300 day fit in the sequential of events and the things that we've already studied in Daniel 2, 7, and now we're in 8. And I want to read this statement again. And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it came to pass when I, Daniel, had seen a vision and sought for the meaning. So did Daniel understand what this meant? He had no idea, right? So skipping to the last verse in chapter 8, we read this in verse 26. The vision of the evening and morning. Now we all know that a day in the Bible is the evening and morning. You can find this for yourself in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. So the vision of the evening and morning, which was told is true, or have shut up the vision, for it shall not be for many days, right? And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days, and afterward I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but what? None understood it. So clearly Daniel didn't understand it. But here's the big question. Is Daniel ever told anything more about the 2300 days? Absolutely yes. And all we have to do is go to Daniel chapter 9. Now when you follow Daniel chapter 8, the very last thing that Daniel says, listen, I don't understand what this 2300 days mean. Now in the Bible there were no chapters written. Okay? In the original, it didn't have chapter 8 and chapter 9. It just continued reading. So I want you to keep that in mind. The last thought of Daniel was, I want to understand what this 2300 days means. I'm seeking for it. Nobody understands it. And then in Daniel chapter 9, we're told this. Daniel chapter 9, verses 21 and 23. Yes, Daniel says, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in vision in the beginning, as I said, it was Gabriel speaking to Daniel all along, and Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. So what did Gabriel come to explain now? The 2300 days, right? There's no question what the angel came to explain. In Daniel chapter 29 and verse 24 and 25, this is what the angel says next. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. Know therefore, then understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. At this point, all that might be pretty confusing when you're trying to figure out what the 2300 days is and all of a sudden you're getting all these numbers. At this point, I want you to just remember one thing. 
the, what the angel Gabriel gave to Daniel was the starting point to the 2300-day prophecy. And it started on the, when the command to restore and to build Jerusalem. So I don't want you to worry about what the 70 weeks means yet. I don't want you to worry about what the 7 weeks and the two, 62 weeks means yet. It's not important, important at this point. What's important you to know is that, is that the command to rebuild Jerusalem is the starting point to the 2300 days. Now again, I'm preaching to the choir, so forgive me for repeating this because I know many of you know this. But in prophecy, many things and times in the Bible, a day equals a year. Days aren't always literal. There are things in the Bible when God says, that, you know, like he was in the grave for three days and three nights, that's a literal time. But prophetically, many times a day represents a year. And I'm going to give you some evidence of that. In Numbers chapter 14 and 34, it states that after the number of days in which you search the land, even 40 days each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities 40 years, and you shall know my breach of promise. Also in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6, And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquities of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Now when you study the book of Daniel and Revelations, mostly the book of Daniel, there's no question about it that a day represents a year. And there are theologians, I mean the vast 9999 all know that in, in the prophecies of Daniel, a day represents a year. And if I have time, I will prove that to you. So this is what we're told in Daniel 9.25. Again, the starting point of the 2300-day prophecy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore, build Jerusalem, unto Messiah the Prince shall be 70 weeks, three score and two weeks. Okay. So here's the big question. In what year did the command to restore and uh, rebuild Jerusalem happen? Again, all we, we have the advantage, brothers and sisters, all we have to do is go back and look on history. And history is clear on the fact that this happened in 457 B.C. In fact, in the book of Ezra, in your Bible, chapter 7, 11, and 28, the Bible talks about this command when it happened. The Bible tells us that the degree happened in the seventh year of the king Artaxerxes, Ezra 7-8, king of Persia, and this happened in 457 B.C. There is no question the date is solid. And even the spirit of prophecy confirms this, and I want to show you this. It's found in Christ in the Sanctuary, page 82. The restoration of Jerusalem, which formed the starting point for the period of the 2300 days, went into effect in the autumn of 457. So there's no question, okay? So now that we have our start and point to the 2300 years, all we have to do is do a little bit of math, right? To know when this event happens. And look at this. Again, I just want to show you that um, the starting point happened in Persia. Okay, so keep in mind, this is the starting point. Now here's what's interesting. You can see the starting point happened in Persia, because that was the king of Persia when it started. If you go 2,300 days from 457, fall to fall, you will come out to the fall of 1844. No question about it. There is no question about this date. It is, it is absolutely clear. But I want to make a point here because a lot of 
people make a mistake when they do the math subtracting 457 from the 2300 days. And if you go on your calendar, because four, you got to keep in mind that BC time count time the years counted backwards. Okay, all the way you got to AD. So in 457, the next year would be 456, and that would continue all the way down to 1 BC. And then AD time time counts forward. 1 AD, 2 AD, 3 AD. So what William Miller did, and made a mistake, and many Adventists make this mistake too, they take the 457 days and they subtract it from the 2300 days, and you're going to come up with 1843. And you can say, well, what, what, what happened? I, I, I subtracted 457, but I come out with 1843. The mistake that they make is this. The starting point of the prophecy happened in the fall of 457 A.D. A year would not be completed to the fall of 456 B.C. Does that make sense? I was born in the fall of October 1959. But I wasn't one year, one year of my life didn't lapse in, in the fall of 1959, right? I wasn't one year old until the fall of 1960. If you see that, say Amen. Okay, so you just follow suit, fall to fall, fall to fall, fall to fall. So in the fall of 1843, the 2300th year wouldn't be completed until the fall of 1844. Amen? And I'll tell you, there are very few people to understand that. So again, I just re-showed that. So watch what happens when we put the 2300 days now in the sequence of, of, of time you will see that when you count the date, that 1844 falls when? Exactly after Rome, they came into power, and it falls in the same sequence in the time when the books were open. So the 2300 days and the cleansing of the sanctuary are the same event. Do you see that? Do you see how fantastic that is? I mean, God has made it so clear you can't miss it. So now let me give you some validation what I'm sharing with you is true. So the cleansing of the sanctuary has to do with the sanctuary service. And of course, I don't have time to go into all the details of the sanctuary service, but you can read it for yourself in Leviticus chapter 17. But the cleansing of the sanctuary was done once a year. It was the last great phase of the sanctuary service. The last phase was called Yom Kippur, which translates the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is also known by the, by the Jewish people to this day as the Day of Judgment. Again, it's the same event. And I want to just share a few statements. These are, the Jewish, these are Jewish people comments, not my own, nor are they Seventh-day Adventists. The cleansing of the century was accomplished by the removal of sins of the year on the Day of Atonement. This Day of Atonement was a Day of Judgment in the camp of Israel. And whosoever sold did not find pardon in that day was cut off. The Jews, even yet in their observance of the day of atonement, regard this day as a day of judgment. Here is a quote from another uh, uh, Jewish person. The the monitory sounds of the shofar are to be heard in the Orthodox synagogue advising preparation for the day of memorial and final judgment of the day of Yom Kippur. One more time. The voice of the trumpet or shofar to scrutinize retrospectively in the actions of the past year while he stands trembling before the all-seeing of the eternal justice sitting on the throne of 
judgment. So the cleansing of the sanctuary and the judgment are the same event. So now uh, I want to read you one more statement by Ellen White. Because it also, again, I've shown it to you from history. I've shown it to you from the Bible. I want to just show you what the Spirit of Prophecy has to say on this event too. Just to ratify everything that I have to say and tell you. And she could not have said it any better than this. Now keep in mind, keep your mind, yourself in mind far as yourself here. Because we are involved in this statement. After this, after his Jesus ascension, our Savior was to begin his work as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the first apartment, okay? The blood of Christ was to release the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law. It was not to cancel the sin. It would only stand on record in the heavenly sanctuary until the final atonement. So your sins went into the most holy place and they were registered where? In the books, right? So in the type of the blood of the sin offering removed the sin from the penitent, but it rested in the sanctuary unto the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. In the great day of final reward, the dead are to be judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Then by virtue of the atoning blood of Christ, the sins of the truly repentant will be blotted from the book of heaven. Thus the sanctuary will be freed or cleansed from the record of sin. Could you say it any clearer? Am I boring you? Do you understand that? The cleansing of the sanctuary and the judgment are the same event. Um, there's so much more I can show you, but I, I still see I'm wearing you guys out. I know it's a lot of reading. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to close with saying something here. Some of our critics also say, listen, I don't believe your year-for-a-day prophecy. I believe the prophecies was literal days. I'm going to tell you what. If you make those literal days, a day and, and a Jewish year is 360 days. It's not 365. But you can say 365. It makes no difference, okay? So you have roughly, in 2,300 years, around 6.5 years. If we took those days literally... Nothing works out historically. Jesus wouldn't have been born in Rome. He would have been born in Persia. His ascension wouldn't have happened in Rome. It would have happened in Persia. I mean, it doesn't work out. Nothing works out if you take those days, those years, and make them days. But an amazing thing happens when you understand a day equals a year. Everything works out perfectly. In fact, if I had time, and I'm not, because I know that this is a lot of information to put on somebody, but when you study until the Messiah, the Prince, it predicts exactly when Jesus would appear on, on the scene. It tells you exactly when Jesus would be anointed in 27 AD. If we break down all these things, it breaks down exactly when the Jewish people would no longer become the Jewish people as the stoning of Stephen. If you take the year-for-day principle, everything works out Perfectly. Amen? Amen? There's no question that the doctrines of the 1844 judgment starting in 1844 is absolutely solid. It's solid. Desmond Ford is wrong. You don't have to waste your time reading a thousand pages. Don't waste your time going on YouTube and listening to the man speak. It's amazing to me today that I've gone on YouTube and I've seen high people within the Adventist church one claiming to be, I have a doctorate degree in Daniel and Revelation. 
and I believe Dr. Ford is correct. Another man says, oh, I've won many awards because I know the Bible from front to back and I can quote everything here and there, and I believe Dr. Desmond Ford is, is right. But none of them give you any solid facts that prove what he says is right. Never. You never get anything solid. So um, it's solid, brothers and sisters. You can be very proud, and I will tell you the vast, vast majority of Adventists have not fallen into Desmond Ford. And you can even go on YouTube, and I hate to say this, it's sad, you can even see, oh, I'm a pastor, I'm a third-generation uh, third pastor, and I've gone to Andrews University, and we know that Desmond Ford is right. And it's like, where do these people come from? I'm telling you, it is a Bible-solid fact. Now, here's something that's very solemn to think about. We, as the Adventist church, were raised up, around that time of 1844. And God gave a, the knowledge of this, of when the judgment would start. No other church has that. God raised this church up to give the three angels' message. If we're not going to tell people, listen, brothers and sisters, you're living in a world of sin, you're going around living your life as if there is no judgment going on in heaven. You're living your life as if nothing's being written down of what's going on in your life. Salvation is being determined. Eternal life and eternal death. And we don't know when our names are going to come up, but be sure of this. The Bible is clear. We will all stand before Christ. And that isn't a literal standing. Is when your name comes up in the judgment. It is, uh, how can I say that? I can't say the word. Uh, it's prophetic, but it's a metaphor of you aren't literally standing, but your name comes up as, as if you're standing. Your total life is going to be reviewed. So we need to remember why God raised this up. He raised this up right then during the 1844 movement when the knowledge became given. I love the fact that the angel first told Daniel, hey, Daniel, don't even worry about it. You know, this isn't even going to happen for many days. Was he right? I mean, in Daniel's time, for the time of Babylon? Yeah, it wasn't going to happen until 1844, many, many years from the time of Daniel. But there's no, I love the, the way the Bible teaches that it would absolutely happen after the ascension of Jesus Christ, the judgment. It was, the Bible makes it absolutely clear that the judgment would happen after the papacy, the little horn, comes into power. And that it happens in perfect sequence, in a time of sequential, as when the books were opened and the judgment was set. It is amazing. It's just amazing. It's amazing prophecy. I hope each and every one of you study this for yourself. You need to fully understand this. If a man asks you about it, you should be able to give a reason for your belief. Amen? If you don't mind, let's just have a closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege we are to be your people, your remnant people. We have the truth on the state of the dead, the second coming. All the wonderful truths. If there ever was an apostolic church, a true remnant of the church in which you raised up, truly it is the Seventh-day Adventist people. We're sorry we've not done our job as we should presenting the 1844 message. But I hope going this day forward that not only individually, we need to be focused on what is going on in heaven right now. We need to take seriously this judgment. And we need to tell our friends about the judgment that's going on in heaven. If, they, if we can find people in this sinful world even interested in hearing it. But Lord, we thank you for this message. What a privilege it is to be your children. Thank you for loving us so much and raising this church up. 
I love this church. I love the truth that it has. I love Brooklyn and Brooklyn's stance, strong stance on the solid biblical truth that you gave this church and as an unrelenting in letting go of any of these truths. We're staying on the track that you gave us. Give us the strength, the knowledge, and the fortitude to continue to keep faith in you and, and, and to cooperate with you in the plan of salvation so you can change us and change our hearts so we can be born again. Help us to abide in Christ. Teach some of us that how do we do abide in Christ. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who makes all these things possible. Amen.